Good evening. Uh, my name is Arne Westod from LLC Ideas. I'm going to be chairing the lecture by Anne Applebaum, the um, LSE Ideas Philippe Romand Professor of History and International Affairs tonight, and welcome to, to all of you. Um, Anne, of course, now, after I introduced her a few weeks ago, need no further introduction, but it is important, I think, to mention that the topic that Anne will be dealing with for her uh, presentation today, the Gulag, what we know now and why it matters, really comes out of one of her several now successful books, um, a book on the Gulag that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2004. Um, it's probably become the most read book uh, of all times with regard to not just the Soviet penal system and the effects thereof, but also for people who try to think about memorialization, uh, about how to deal uh, in terms of, of history and what we know today. Um, with these terrible tragedies that peoples of the Soviet Union went through um, during the Soviet era. It's particularly pertinent um, that this lecture is taking place now because, as some of you will know, it's, it's exactly 50 years since uh, the publication in, in the Soviet Union of uh, Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Dinosovich. And that is... Uh, probably the starting point, at least for many Russians, in terms of their understanding, the attempts to deal with the tragedies of the Gulag and of the Stalinist period in general. I'm just back from Berlin. I came back this morning. And I must say that it has struck me, when you compare uh, the memorialization of the victims of uh, Nazi rule in, in Germany, with the complete lack of memorialization of any significant amount in the former Soviet Union to the victims of the Gulag and the victims of the um, Soviet system uh, in general. And it's something that always puzzles me when I'm in Russia and uh, elsewhere, that there are absolutely no memorials that people can seek out, at least no official memorials that people can seek out, in terms of this immense tragedy that everyone who lived in the Soviet Union was touched by during that period. And therefore, it's particularly important that people who take an interest in Russian and in Soviet history fasten on this particular subject and try to deal with it in text. So we are very grateful uh, to have Anne Applebaum here as the Philippe Romain Professor in, in LSE Ideas um, and to hear her presentation. I should also mention the... Um, existence within LSE ideas of a Russia program that we are trying to expand. A number of people who are here tonight have a link to that program. Um, and one of the things that we are trying to do is to invite younger Russian scholars, particularly those dealing with uh, the Russian Empire and early Russian history, here to LSE ideas to spend some time here. We've had, I think, about 12 young Russian scholars who have been here so far. And this has been a tremendous success. It's something that we have learned a great deal from, and I think they have benefited from as well. And perhaps if there is one thing that should come out of historical investigations of Russian and Soviet history, it is the need to cooperate between people who work on, on Soviet history outside of Russia and those who now are starting to work on it, particularly the younger people who are starting to work on it inside Russia itself. And it's a great pleasure to have you here. It's, it's wonderful to have you on board as Philip Romo Professor and be very much looking forward to your lecture tonight on the Gulag, what we know now, and why it matters. Anna Plop.
Uh, thank you very much. Again, Arnie, I won't um, <coughs> belabor my thanks uh, for, for the second time. It, it really is a pleasure being here, having been a not entirely successful student here 30 years ago. Um, I, I did do a master's degree, and I did get the degree, but yeah. um, it, it, it's, it's, it's very nice to be here. And to, to set the historical context, um, I'd like to begin by pointing out that not only are we approaching the 50th anniversary of the publication of um, Solzhenitsyn's first books, but um, I'm also standing to you tonight just four months shy of the 60th anniversary of Stalin's death. Um, in commemoration of that event, um, I'd like to read a very short excerpt from the memoirs of his daughter Svetlana, uh, who sat by his deathbed until the very end. Uh, for the last 12 hours, she wrote, the lack of oxygen became acute. The death agony was terrible. He literally choked to death as we watched. At what seemed to be the very last moment, he opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane or perhaps angry, and full of the fear of death. Within days of Stalin's demise, his henchmen, Beria and then Khrushchev, began dismantling one of the Soviet leader's signature achievements, namely his concentration camps. Uh, they did so for many reasons. Some had wives and relatives in the camps. Some feared retribution from others who did. Uh, most of all, though, they did so because the camps were an economic disaster, which they knew, and about which more in a moment. And some feared they were a political disaster waiting to happen as well. Uh, no one, of course, knew better than Stalin's Politburo just how many people imprisoned within them were innocent. Um, yet, although they knew this, none of Stalin's uh, Soviet successors, not Nikita Khrushchev, not Leonid Brezhnev, and not in the end even Mikhail Gorbachev, was far-seeing or politically powerful enough uh, to finish the job of dismantling the system and the, and the, and the memory of the system. Um, and as a result, both the economic and the moral legacy of the camps continue to distort Russian society today. So one might say that Stalin is dead, but his last terrible gaze still casts its shadow. But although the legacy of the Gulag is, is the ultimate subject of my talk tonight, I want to begin with a brief account of what we have learned about the camps, um, not really since the time of Stalin's death, but in particular what we know now that we did not know 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I've never claimed that in writing my narrative history of the Gulag that I discovered a new topic that had never been touched on before. Uh, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, the history of the camp system that he wrote and published in the West in the 1970s, largely got the outline right. Um, although he had no access to archives and all the, based all of his writing on letters and the memoirs of other prisoners, uh, he did, it now appears, understand the basic outline of the Gulag's history from its earliest incarnation on the Solovetsky Islands in the White Sea, through its spread across the far north uh, and then around the country, uh, proving, in fact, that prisoners' gossip, as it was sometimes dismissed, um, was not as inaccurate as, 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 as many people thought. Uh, in the years, though, that I spent researching my book, uh, I concluded that archives can make a difference to how we understand Soviet history. Um, I, there, there are a lot of stories now about archives closing, but just to be clear, I was able uh, in the 90s to work in archives in Moscow and Karelia, and I had access to documents from archives in St. Petersburg, Perm, Vorkuta, Kolyma, and Novosibirsk. Uh, at one point, I was handed a part of the archive of a small camp, kind of lagpunkt, called the Kudrovi Shore in the far north, and I was politely asked if I wanted to buy it, uh, which I did. 
of course. It's now at the Hoover Institute. Um, what was available to me was very often quite ordinary, the day-to-day -day archive of the Gulag administration, for example, with inspectors' reports and financial accounts, letters from camp directors to their supervisors in Moscow. But when reading these documents, the full extent of the system and its importance to the Soviet economy comes sharply into focus. Uh, so Certainly these documents enabled me to be far more precise than was ever possible in the past. Um, thanks to archives, we now know, for example, that there were at least 476 camp systems, each one made up of hundreds or even thousands of individual camps or lagpunks, uh, sometimes spread out over thousands of square miles of otherwise empty tundra. Uh, we know that the vast majority of prisoners in them were peasants and workers and not the intellectuals who later wrote memoirs and books. We know that with a few exceptions, Stalin's camps were not designed in order to kill people. They were not constructed that way because Stalin preferred to use firing squads to conduct his mass executions. Nevertheless, they were at times very lethal. Uh, nearly a quarter of the Gulag's prisoners died during the war years. Uh, they were also very fluid. Uh, prisoners left because they died, because they escaped, because they had short sentences, uh, because they were being released into the Red Army, or because they had been promoted from prisoner to guard, as sometimes happened. Uh, there were also frequent amnesties for the old, the ill, for pregnant women, and for anyone else no longer useful to the forced labor system. And these releases were inevitably followed by new waves of arrests. As a result, we now also know that between 1929, when they first became a mass phenomenon, and 1953, the year of Stalin's death, some 18 million people passed through the Soviet gulag. So in addition, a further six or seven million people were deported not to camps but to exile villages. In total, that means that the number of people with some experience of imprisonment and the penal system in Stalin's Soviet Union could have run as high as 25 million or about 15% of the population. We also now know where the camps were, um, namely everywhere. Um, although probably all of us are familiar with the image of the prisoner in the snowstorm digging coal with a pickaxe, uh, there were also camps in central Moscow where prisoners built apartment blocks or designed airplanes. Uh, there were camps in Krasnoyarsk where prisoners ran nuclear power plants. Uh, and there were fishing camps on the Pacific coast. Um, the Gulag photo albums in the Russian State Archive, which I have seen, are chock full of pictures of prisoners with their camels. You know, from Aktubinsk to Yakutsk, there was, in the end, not a single major population center that did not have its own local camp or camps, and not a single industry that did not employ prisoners. Over the years, prisoners built roads, railroads, uh, power plants, chemical factories. Uh, they manufactured weapons. They made furniture, even children's toys. So in the Soviet Union of the 1940s, the decade the camps reached their zenith, it would have been difficult in many places to go about your daily business and not run into prisoners. So it's no longer possible to argue, as some Western historians once did, that the camps were known to only a small proportion of the population. Of course, we also now understand better the chronology of the camps. Uh, we've long known that Lenin built the first ones in 1918 at the time of the revolution um, as a kind of ad hoc emergency measure to contain the enemies of the people and prevent counter-revolution. Um, we also have known that he and his successors expanded them to the Solovetsky Islands in the early 1920s. Um, but the archives shed a good deal of light on why Stalin chose to expand them further in 1929. 
Uh, in that year, Stalin launched the five-year plan, uh, an extraordinarily costly attempt in human lives and natural resources to force a 20% annual increase in the Soviet Union's industrial output and to collectivize agriculture. This plan, as most of you in this room will know, led to millions of arrests as peasants were forced off their land and they were imprisoned if they refused. But it also led to an enormous labor shortage. Uh, suddenly, the Soviet Union found itself in need of coal, gas, and minerals, which could only be found in the far north of the country. Uh, following a series of discussions, which used almost exclusively economic language to justify the expansion of the camps, the decision was taken at the very highest levels of, of, of the Soviet government, the Soviet, of the party, that prisoners should be used to extract these needed minerals. And to the secret policemen who were then charged with carrying out the construction of the camps, this solution made a lot of sense. And so here is how Alexei Loginov, who's the former deputy commander of the Norilsk camps uh, north of the Arctic Circle, justified the use of prisoner labor in a 1992 interview. He said, if we had sent civilians, we would first have had to build houses for them to live in. And how could civilians live there? With prisoners, it's easy. All you need is a barrack, a stove with a chimney, and they survive. Prisoners in gulag documents are very often referred to as contingenti, contingents. You know, from the point of view of the Soviet leadership and of the camp commanders, they were an ingredient in production. They were like lumps of coal or bars of steel. You know, enemies of the people didn't need to live like civilians in normal houses at all, which made them both cheaper and more expendable. None of this is to say that the camps, in addition to their economic function, were not also intended to terrorize and subjugate the population. Uh, certainly it's true that prison and camp regimes, which were dictated in very minute detail by Moscow, uh, were openly designed to humiliate prisoners. Famously, prisoners' belts, buttons, garters, and items made of elastic were taken away from them. Uh, they were described as enemies. Uh, they were forbidden to use the word comrade, even with one another. Such measures uh, contributed to the dehumanization of prisoners in the eyes of camp guards and bureaucrats, who therefore found it that much easier not to treat them as fellow citizens and maybe not even as fellow human beings. In fact, uh, this turned out to be an incredibly powerful ideological combination. Uh, the disregarding of the humanity of prisoners combined with the overwhelming need to fulfill the plan. And nowhere is this clearer, I found, than in the camp inspection reports, which were submitted periodically by local prosecutors and are now kept neatly on file in the Moscow archives. Uh, when I first began to read them, I was quite shocked, um, both by their frankness and by the peculiar kind of outrage they express. You know, so describing conditions in Volgolag, a railroad construction camp in Tartarstan in July 1942, one inspector complained, for example, that, quote, the whole population of the camp, including free workers, lives off flour. The only meal for prisoners is so-called bread made from flour and water without meats or fats. Unquote. As a result, the inspector went on indignantly. There are high rates of illness, particularly scurvy, and not surprisingly, the camp was failing to meet its production norms. Well, this outrage uh, ceased to seem surprising after I'd read several dozen similar reports, each of which used more or less the same sort of language and each of which ended with more or less the same ritual conclusion. You know, conditions must be improved so that the prisoners will work harder and so that production norms will be met. 
um, very little was actually done. Uh, while it might have been expected that living conditions in the Gulag would be poor during the war, as they were all over the Soviet Union, um, a nationwide inspection of 23 large camps in 1948 still concluded, among other things, that 75% of the prisoners in Nuril Lag, in northern Siberia, Norilsk, had no warm boots, uh, that the number of prisoners unfit for hard labor in Karelia had recently tripled, that death rates were still, quote-unquote, too high in half a dozen camps, that is, too high to allow for efficient production. Uh, the, these reports reminded me very much of the inspectors of Gogol's era. You know, the forms were observed, the reports were filed, the effects on actual human beings were ignored. You know, there would be, a, there would be a, a result. Camp commanders were routinely reprimanded for failing to improve living conditions. Living conditions continued to fail to improve, and there the discussion ended. Um, of course, the level of specificity in these reports also clears up any remaining doubt about who was in control of the camps, you know, the, uh, and the, the central government or the regional bosses. And back in Moscow, they knew exactly what camps were like, and they knew really in very great detail. Now, without question, the expansion of the camps in this period and later uh, distorted the Soviet economy. With so much cheap labor available, the Soviet economy took far longer than it should have done to become mechanized. You know, all kinds of problems were solved just by calling for more workers. Uh, with so many, uh, famously, of course, the White Sea Canal was built with pickaxes. Uh, with so many poorly trained people working under coercion, construction was not of the highest quality either. Uh, by one account, labor productivity among free workers in the forestry industry was three times higher than among workers in the camps. Nevertheless, the camps also distorted the way that people in the lands of the former Soviet Union thought about economics, um, which is a point I'd like to illustrate by describing a trip I took to Vorkuta a few years ago on the Arctic Circle. Uh, Vorkuta's history begins in 1931, when a group of colonists first arrived in the region by boat up the northern waterways. Uh, although even the czars had known about the region's enormous coal reserves, no one had ever managed to work out precisely how to get the coal out of the ground, uh, given the sheer horror of life in a place where temperatures regularly drop to minus 30 or minus, minus 40 in the winter, and where the sun does not shine for six months of the year, and where in the summertime, the flies and the mosquitoes, as I can testify, they travel in these big dark clouds. Uh, nevertheless, Stalin found a way uh, by making use of another sort of vast reserve. Um, Vorkuta's 23 original settlers were, of course, prisoners, and the leaders of that founding expedition were, of course, secret policemen. So over the subsequent two and a half decades, a million more prisoners would eventually pass through Vorkuta, which is one of the two or three most notorious hubs of the Gulag. Uh, with the help of prisoners, the Soviet authorities in Vorkuta built shops and swimming pools and schools. Uh, the cost of heating shoddy Soviet apartment blocks for 11 months of the year was astronomical, far more, as it turned out, than the value of the coal itself. The city's infrastructure, built on constantly shifting permafrost, required huge efforts to maintain. You know, miners could instead have been flown in and out on two-week or four-week shifts as they are in Canada or Alaska. Nevertheless, Vorkuta, the city, kept going throughout the 1970s and 1980s, and some 70,000 people still live there today. You know, the truth, of course, is that Vorkuta was and still is completely unnecessary. Why build kindergartens and university lecture halls in the tundra? You know, why build a puppet theater? You know, Vorkuta has three. 
or did when I was there. Maybe they've closed down. Uh, but in Vorkuta, it's surprisingly difficult to make that argument or ask such questions, even now. Um, I, you know, I asked them, for example, of Zhenya, who is a retired geologist with whom I spent the better part of a day. And together, she and I walked around the city. Uh, we went to see the prisoner cemeteries, which have, have been uh, memorialized in recent years. Uh, we walked around the ruined geological institute, which was a once solid structure complete with a columned Stalinist portico and a red star on the pediment. And although Zhenya's Polish parents had been deported to Vorkut in the 1940s, although she knows and willingly recounts the city's history, um, Zhenya nevertheless spent a good part of the day railing against the thief Democrats and the greedy bureaucrats who had probably sensibly decided to shut the institute down. So if your whole life has been associated with the place, it is hard to admit that that place should never have existed. And even if that place is widely famed for atrocity and for stupidity, and even if it is notoriously unpleasant, it's even harder to admit that it should never have been built at all. But if Zhenya, who was herself the daughter of victims, um, was unable to understand why her city is now being dismantled, um, then who can understand it? Uh, and that question brings me to the next part of my talk tonight, in which I would like to ask why the Gulag, about which historians, Soviet historians and Russian historians, uh, now know so much, um, and whose economic impact we understand so much better, why is it so seldom debated and discussed by Russians? One of the things which always strikes contemporary visitors to Russia is the lack of monuments to Stalin's victims. Um, Arnie mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, yes, there are a few scattered memorials. Um, there are places, as in Vorkuta, there is a prisoner's cemetery. In Kolyma, there's a small, not even that small, there's a statue. But there is no national monument or place of mourning. And in fact, the absence of monuments is a good measure because it accurately indicates, accurately indicates a lack of, an absence of public awareness. Um, of course, those of you who know recent history know that there were wide-ranging discussions of Soviet repression in the late 1980s during uh, Gorbachev's reign, during Glasnost, uh, and it's equally true that these discussions were extremely important and they played a very big role in delegitimizing the Soviet regime. Nevertheless, that bitter debate about justice for victims and about history is now really quite completely over, and more importantly, it had left no political institutions in its wake. Uh, although there was much talk about it at the end of the 1980s, the Russian government never did examine or try their perpetrators of torture or mass murder, uh, even those who were identifiable at the time. Uh, there were no truth commissions, either of the sort implemented in South Africa, which might have allowed victims to tell their stories in public in an official public place and to make the crimes of the past a part of contemporary debate. So, and, and the result, predictably, is that half a century after the end of World War II, uh, the Germans still conduct regular public debates about victims' compensation, about memorials, about new interpretations of Nazi history, uh, even about whether a younger generation of Germans should go on shouldering the burden of guilt about the crimes of the Nazis. Uh, half a century after Stalin's death, 60 years after Stalin's death, there are no equivalent arguments taking place in Russia because the memory of the past is not a living part of public discourse. Now, I... I should say, and those of you who know Russia will know this, that at some level the reasons for this are not hard to fathom. Um, the Stalinist era was really a long time ago, and a great deal has happened since it ended. 
Uh, Post-Soviet Russia is not the same as post-Soviet Germany, where the memories of the worst atrocities are still fresh in people's minds. Um, the, the memory of the camps, or I should say post-communist Russia, the memory of the camps is also confused in Russia by the presence of so many other atrocities, you know, war, famine, collectivization. You know, why should camp survivors get special treatment? People have said that to me. Further confused by the link made in some people's minds uh, between the discussion of the past that took place in the 1980s and the economic collapse which followed in the 1990s. What was the point of talking about all that, people said to me. It got us nowhere. There's also a question of pride. You know, like Zhenya, uh, many experienced the collapse of the Soviet Union as a personal blow. You know, perhaps the old system was bad, they now feel, but at least we were powerful. And now that we aren't powerful, uh, we don't want to hear that it's bad. It was bad. Nevertheless, the most important explanation for the lack of debate is not the fears and anxieties of ordinary Russians, but the nature of the country's new ruling class. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is a former KGB officer who has described himself as a Czechist, deliberately using the word for Lenin's hated political police. Uh, Famously, the Russian president has also described the breakup of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, presumably meaning greater than World World Wars I or II. Under his watch, Soviet flags have returned to anniversary parades, and the Soviet national anthem has been revived, albeit with new words and nobody knows them. Um, His intentions are clear enough to me and to those around him, as I'll explain in greater depth in a later lecture in in February. Um, Putin is and was trying to create an alternate version of post-Soviet history, one which supports his ideology. You know, thus 1989 was not a moment of liberation, but the beginning of economic collapse. Uh, The hardships and the deprivations of the 1990s were not the result of decades of communist neglect or widespread thievery, but of Western-style capitalism and democracy. You know, communism was at least stable and safe. Post-communism has been a disaster. You know, the Soviet Union was powerful. Russia, at least until recently, was a failure. You know, the more people believe all of this, the less likely they are to want a system which is more genuinely democratic and genuinely capitalist. You know, the more nostalgia for Soviet-era symbols, the more, he seems to believe, uh, more secure his KGB clique is going to be. Uh, This failure to repent or to discuss or even to dwell on the past um, is is a part of this explanation for this this redirecting of history towards the political needs of the present rulers. Uh, It has also had consequences for the formation of Russian civil society and for the development of the rule of law. You know, it, it helps to explain, for example, why so many Russians are not bothered by certain kinds of censorship or by the the FSB, the new incarnation of KGB's ability to open mail, tap telephones, or enter private residences without a court order. Um, I think there's a deeper significance, too. Uh, To put it uh, very bluntly, if the scoundrels of the old regime go unpunished, good will in no sense be seen to have triumphed over evil. This may sound, I don't know, apocalyptic or American, but it's not, it's not politically irrelevant. You know, after 1991, the secret police kept their apartments, uh, their dachas, and their large pensions. Uh, their victims remained poor and marginal and still are. And to most Russians, it now seems as if the more you collaborated in the past, the wiser you were. You know, by analogy, the more you cheat and lie in the present, the wiser you are now. 
Um, personally, what bothers me the most about Russia's lack of interest in his past is the way it has deprived young people of a whole category of heroes. You know, the names of those who secretly oppose Stalin ought to be as widely known in Russia as they are, as are in Germany, for example, uh, the names of people who took part in the plot to kill Hitler. You know, the incredibly rich body of Russian survivors' literature, really extraordinary stories of people whose humanity triumphed over the horrifying conditions of Soviet labor camps, should be better read and better known and more frequently quoted. You know, if school children knew these heroes and their stories better, uh, they would find something, something else to be proud of in Russia's past, Soviet past, aside from imperial military triumphs. You know, this, after all, is the country that invented the modern human rights movement. Um, but in, in today's Russia, those early human rights activists have left a very thin legacy. Um, on the contrary, Russian indifference to the past may also have helped create a widespread indifference to judicial and police reform. Uh, political trials and harsh sentences are now returning. Uh, a few weeks ago, two women, two young women, were sentenced to a Siberian labor camp as punishment for a political protest. Well, I, many such places have changed surprisingly little. Uh, some years ago, I visited a criminal prison in Arkhangelsk, and I emerged really genuinely reeling from what I'd seen. You know, these women's cells with their hot, heavy air and sort of overwhelming stench really made me feel as if I was walking into the past, you know, into one of Yevgenia Ginsburg's descriptions of her Stalinist-era prisons. Um, in, one, in one cell, I met a sobbing 15-year-old girl who'd been accused of stealing the ruble equivalent of $10. Uh, she'd been in jail without a hearing for a week. Uh, afterwards, I spoke to the prison boss. It all was about money, he said. He said, the prison warders are rude because they're badly paid. The ventilation is bad because the building is old and needs repairs. Uh, Electricity is expensive, so we have to keep the corridors dark. Trials are delayed because there aren't enough judges. Now, I wasn't convinced. You know, money is a problem, but it's not the whole explanation. You know, if Russia's prisons still look like a scene from a gulag memoir, and if Russia's courts and criminal investigations are still heavily politicized, you know, that's partly because the Soviet legacy does not haunt Russia's criminal police, secret police, judges, jailers, or businessmen. You know, but then very few people in contemporary Russia feel the past to be a burden or an obligation at all. Uh, like a great unopened Pandora's box, uh, the past lies in wait for another generation. Yet do we in the West remember the Soviet past any better? Um, one of the reasons I wrote my Gulag book, um, really horribly 15 years ago now, it's hard to believe when I started it, was because I really encountered this subject only while living in Eastern Europe, and I started to wonder why. Um, since there are presumably some other book writers in the room tonight, I can also confess that I was inspired by an extremely irritating New York Times review of my first book uh, in 1994, which was about the western borderlands of the Soviet Union. And although, you know, of course, largely positive, it contained the following line, quote, here, meaning here, meaning Ukraine and Belarusia, here occurred the terror famine of the 1930s in which Stalin killed more Ukrainians than Hitler murdered Jews. Yet how many in the West remember it? After all, the killing was so boring and ostensibly undramatic. Were Stalin's murders boring? Um, many people think so. 
Indeed, and I, I've, I've just added this sentence an hour ago, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, a brand new New York Times review of my brand new book, Iron Curtain, also asks why anyone should care nowadays about Soviet atrocities in Eastern Europe. Haven't we all heard this before, is what more or less the conclusion. Um, until recently, um, I, you, it was, of course, possible to explain this absence of popular feeling in our part of the world about the tragedy of European communism as the logical result of a particular set of circumstances. You know, the passage of time is part of it. Again, you know, communist regimes really did grow less reprehensible as the years went by. Nobody was very frightened of General Yaroselsky or even of Brezhnev, um, although, of course, both were responsible for a great deal of destruction. You know, besides, archives were closed. Access to campsites was forbidden. No television cameras ever filmed the Soviet camps or their victims as they did in Germany at the end of World War II. You know, no images, in turn, meant that the subject in our image-driven culture didn't really exist either. Of course, to some extent, ideology twisted the ways in which we understood Soviet and East European history as well. Uh, in fact, in the 1920s, a great deal was known in the West about the bloodiness of Lenin's revolution. Now, Western socialists, many of whose brethren had been jailed by the Bolsheviks right after the revolution, protested loudly and strongly against those arrests. Um, nevertheless, in the 1930s, however, as Americans and West Europeans became more interested in learning how socialism or elements of socialism could be applied here, the tone changed. Writers and journalists went off to the USSR trying to learn lessons they could use at home. And the New York Times employed a correspondent, famously, Walter Durante, who lauded the five-year plan and argued that it was a massive success and won a Pulitzer Prize for doing so. Uh, throughout the 1930s and 1940s, a part, not all, but a part of the Western left struggled to explain and sometimes excuse the camps and the terror which created them precisely because they wanted to make use of some aspect, um, even, even distantly, of the Soviet experiment at home. Now, but it's not only the left. In fact, our determination to ignore Soviet terror solidified even further during the Second World War when Stalin was our ally. In 1944, uh, the then American Vice President, uh, Henry Wallace, who was fortunately next replaced by, by Truman, uh, actually went to Kolyma, which was one of the most notorious camps, during a trip across the USSR. And imagining he was visiting some kind of industrial complex, uh, he told his hosts that, quote, Soviet Asia reminded him of the Wild West. You know, quote, the vast expanses of your country, her virgin forests, wide rivers and large lakes, all kinds of climate from tropical to polar, her inexhaustible wealth remind me of my homeland. It's an American, yeah. According to a report that uh, the boss of Kalima later wrote for Beria, the head of the security services, Wallace did ask to see prisoners, but he was kept away. Um, he was not alone, of course, in refusing to see the truth, and you can hardly blame him. Uh, Roosevelt and Churchill had their photographs taken with Stalin, too. All, all of that contributed to our firm conviction that the Second World War was a wholly just war. And very few people today want that conviction shaken. You know, we remember D-Day, liberation of the Nazi camps, uh, the children welcoming American GIs, you know, with cheers on the streets. And we don't want to remember, we try not to remember, that the camps of Stalin, our ally, expanded just as the camps of Hitler, our enemy, were liberated. And nobody wants to think that we defeated one mass murder with the help of another. Uh, during the Cold War, it's true, our awareness of Soviet atrocities went up, 
Uh, in the 1960s, they receded again. Even in the 1980s, I remember it well, there were still American academics who went on describing the advantages of East German healthcare or Polish peace initiatives. You know, in the academic world, when I went to university, Soviet historians who wrote about the camps generally divided up into two groups. Uh, those who wrote about them as criminal and those who downplayed them, if not because they were actually pro-Soviet, then because they didn't like Ronald Reagan. So right up into the end, our views of the Soviet Union and its repressive system always had more to do with American politics and American ideological struggles and political arguments than they ever had to do with the Soviet Union itself. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, much has really changed. Um, World War II now belongs to a previous generation. The Cold War is over too, and the alliances and the international fault lines it produced have shifted for good. Uh, the Western left and the Western right now compete over completely different issues. Um, it's become finally possible for us to stop looking at the history of the Soviet Union through the narrow lens of Western politics. Um, it's possible, and I'll conclude by saying it's also necessary. Um, it's true that our tolerance for the occasional gulag denier in our universities will not destroy the moral fabric of our society, and even I don't think that the fashion for hammer and sickle t-shirts will corrupt our youth forever. Nevertheless, it's true that if we, if we fail to incorporate what we do know now about the gulag into our own memory of Europe and our own memory of European history, there will be consequences. You know, after all, it is our history. You know, why did we fight the Cold War after all? You know, was it because crazed right-wing politicians, you know, in cahoots with the military-industrial complex and the CIA invented the whole thing and they forced two generations of Americans and West Europeans to go along with it? You know, or was there something more important happening? You know, I'm not sure we still remember what it was that mobilized us, what inspired us, and what held the civilization of the West together for so long. At the same time, if we don't study the history of the Gulag, then some of what we know about mankind itself will be distorted. Every one of the 20th century's mass tragedies was unique. The Gulag, the Holocaust, the Armenian Massacre, the Nanking Massacre, the Cultural Revolution, the Cambodian Revolution, the Bosnian Wars, you know, I could go on. You know, every single one of these events had different historical and philosophical origins, and they arose in circumstances that will never be repeated. But our ability to debase and destroy and dehumanize our fellow men has been and will be repeated again and again our transformation of our neighbors into enemies, our reinvention of our victims as lower, lesser, evil beings worthy only of incarceration or expulsion or death. The more we understand about how different societies have transformed their neighbors and fellow citizens into objects, the more we know of the specific circumstances that which led to each episode of mass murder, the better we will understand the darker side of our own human nature. You know, I wrote my book about the Gulag not so that it will never happen again, as the cliche has it, but because it will happen again. Uh, we need to know why. You know, and each story, each memoir, and each document is a piece of the puzzle. You know, without them, we'll wake up one day and realize that we do not know who we are. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and that was, that was excellent, and your underlining of the historian's creed. 
at the end. It was very moving. Um, I wanted to start um, by asking you a question of a maybe somewhat more precise character, but it, it goes to the heart of one of your arguments, and that has to do with the economic effects mm-hmm. um, of the gulag system in the Soviet Union, where you said that one way of looking at it, I mean, you, you indicated there were several ways of this could be approached, but one way of looking at it was that it actually held Soviet economic development back to a certain extent in terms of the development, presumably then, of other sectors of the economy. But is it quite possible to think about it in those terms? I mean, wasn't the gulag system, in a way, in a fearful kind of way, an integral part of the Soviet system? I mean, where it was very difficult to imagine that the Soviet economy, at least the way it developed during the Stalinist era, um, could have existed at all without a system of penal colonies that delivered inexpensive, non-expensive labor? I mean, there are two answers to that question. It, um, I've I've been asked a version of this before, which is, can you imagine the Soviet Union without the gulag, and how can you separate it out? And I think I think in that to that part of your question, yes, you're right. It's hard to imagine it, and maybe the better expression to use is not that it held the Soviet system back, but that it held Russia back and it held Ukraine back, and that the you know the development of this part of the world was not so much not so much underdeveloped as misdeveloped. You know that. You know, when you looked at the Soviet economy in, in 1990, 91, uh, things were simply in the wrong place. You know, factories weren't near the source of iron or coal. Um, and there was far too much development in the very expensive far north, where it costs far more to, to, to build cities. And this is part, of, of course, of a bigger mentality, which is, you know, the, so the, the, you know bizarrely, given how obsessed they were with economics, uh, Soviet planners were not very good economists. You know, they didn't count how much it's going to cost to heat the buildings in Vorkuta. You know, they would say, all right, we need this coal. Let's have lots of miners living up there. Let's build a lot of buildings for them. And th- but the, the, there was never any, um, never any way of estimating what, what costs what and what, what's the real expense involved in building a city. Um, and so the, there, there was a kind of distorting of the whole system that, I mean, it's not only to do with the gulag, but the gulag was a piece of it because the gulag provided um, cheap labor. I mean, of course, the interesting thing is that the Politburo, the Soviet leadership itself understood this at the end. I mean, you know, not Stalin, but, uh, you know, Beria and, and people around him were very clear that the, the gulag was, a, was, a, was an economic problem. Um, ironically, of course, it had started as a, you know, the point of it, from St- Stalin's use of it was for economic reasons. You know, he wanted, he believed that spreading the gulag, he'd read a lot of Peter the Great. Yeah. And he thought, well, if, you can, if we could just, you know, create slave labor all over the place like he did, then we'll, um, um, then we'll, um, or misread Peter the Great, maybe I should say. Then, he, you know, then, then that will make, so I was going to say there are about seven historians of imperial Russia in the room. I don't want to offend them. Um, but, but, um, you know, but he thought, well, yes, that this will increase our, our economic production. Actually, by the, by the end of the 30s, it was clear that this was a problem, and by the early 50s, Beria certainly knew that it was economically disastrous. The camps were very expensive. They were expensive to maintain. It's not an intelligent way to use your labor force. It's not very smart to send your nuclear physicists to dig coal. Um, it, was a, it was an immense waste of human resources, and even they knew it. Um, and that was that was part of the original decision to begin dismantling it in in 53 and 54. So it was the inefficiency of the whole system that was 
built into it. In the, 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 inefficient, the whole system was inefficient, and the gulag was kind of the most inefficient part of the inefficient system. I mean, in it, and in it, you know, of course, it appealed to Stalin not only for economic reasons, but in, of course it had other, another purpose too, um, which, is probably the, which is the real reason why it wasn't dismantled, because it, it served another function, which was it was, a, it was a part of the system of terror. So. Good. Other questions? I will start down here. Yes, at the end over there. Hi, um, thanks a lot for that. I, I found out today, and I found this quite remarkable, that um, uh, uh, the, the day in the life of Ivan Desnenovich, I think, was published in, what, 50 years ago, 62. Mm-hmm. But then, and I haven't read it, but I have read Vasily Grossman's Wonderful Life and Fate. Mm-hmm. And Grossman died in 64, and I think he and, um, if I'm not incorrect, he and uh, um, Slozhenitsyn were writing their two sort of masterpieces at the same time. And it's sort of about Soviet totalitarianism. Now, how is it that, well, why do you think it is that Grossman's uh, whole manuscript was taken away by the KGB and he was told that it wouldn't be published in 200 years? Like, I think it was literally 1962. Uh, but then Slozhenitsyn's book is, is published. Why is, I mean, how does that work? Why did the Soviet system allow Slozhenitsyn's stuff to be published and That's very Grossman's specific. not? I might answer yeah, that right sure. away. Go ahead. There's, a, there's a very re- clear reason for it. It was the Solzhenitsyn's book was published as part because of it was part of a political conflict then taking place at the highest levels between Khrushchev and others in the Politburo. It was part of a sort of um, it was published because Khrushchev was fighting against a group of people who roughly one would call Stalinists, I mean, who later became the Brezhnevites. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go into boring detail, but it was a it was a political gesture, and actually, although it was published. And then it was unbelievably popular and read everywhere and caused immense comment and debate. It was actually bad reviews of it began to appear soon after. Um, and by 63 or 64, you couldn't find it anymore. And it was effectively rebanned uh, within a year or two after, after Khrushchev fell from power. So it was, it was a kind of piece of there – there was a conflict going on inside the Politburo over who would take power after Stalin's death. And, the, and the, Ivan Denisovich was a kind of tool in that conflict. You know, the sort of the modernizers were using it against the Stalinists, and, you know, and they they pushed through the publication of it. Um, so it, 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 it wasn't that anybody felt deeply moved by it, or maybe some people felt deeply moved by it, but um, it's not clear whether Khrushchev did um, or that he even really understood it before it was published. The Soviets, in that sense, were the last ones to take literature seriously. Yes, yes. I mean, imagine, imagine a book being published as part of the war between David Cameron and Nick Clegg. You know, you just, you can't, it's impossible to see it. You know, Cameron forces the publication of a novel that somehow embarrasses Clegg. You know, it does, it's, you're absolutely right. Was there another, yes, another question over there. I'll move around the room. Hi. Um, coincidentally, there's an article on the BBC website today by Steve Rosenberg on exactly this uh, topic, and he quotes a recent survey in which 48% of Russians viewed, the Stal- viewed Stalin as having a positive influence on, um, on the Soviet Union. Your view? Hmm. I can take that one. I mean, funny, uh, literally yesterday I was reading, there's a new book by somebody called Leon Aaron, who's an American academic, and who has written a book about uh, Glasnost, and he's gone back through 
polling done in the in the late 80s and through you know you know reread all those endless essays people were writing and publishing in the Russian press when it first became possible in the late 80s and early 90s and the polling then is really extraordinary I mean it, it's um, it surprised even me I, I, I didn't bring it with me and I don't have it off the top of my head but the you know condemnation of Stalin people ask people asking questions such as what you know, um, you know, what do you feel about communism? The numbers are, you know, 99% negative. What kind of a country do you want to live in? 90, 99% we want to live in a liberal democracy. I mean, the, the, there was a mood in Russia um, in, the late, in the late 80s and early 90s that was deeply and profoundly anti-Stalinist. Um, and that was clearly created by the discussion and debate of the issue. You know, since then, you've had... I mean, I don't want to say there's been no conversation, and I've simplified this a little bit because it goes more like this rather than like that. Um, there are moments when issues come up and then they die and then they come up again and they die. But the, generally speaking, public debate about that period is very weak and poor. And while there are some people still talking about it, it's not illegal to talk about it. It's really gone. Um, so you now have a younger generation of people who don't know much about it. Um, you know, Stalin was good. Yeah, he won the war. Um, uh, yeah, um, th- we haven't learned anything different from that, or not much more. Um, so, so yes, you have had a. There's been a real sea change in the last 20 years, and you have to ask why. You know, is it? it, it it's to do with the politics. It's to do with the educational system. Um, it's to do with the discussion of this issue. It's 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 very very dramatic. Other question at the back. Um, I was particularly uh, moved when you mentioned the hammer and sickle t-shirts. When I was a young man, um, I was a member of the Communist Party for a number of years. I'm ashamed of that fact now, but uh, I was duped and I went along with it. It was at the time of the Vietnam War and I've got all the excuses, but with hindsight, looking back on it, I just look at myself and say, what a bloody fool I was. But... I meet lots of, uh, well, not lot. I meet a few ex-comrades from that era, and they are steadfastly refusing to accept the evidence. You mentioned about the uh, young people in the Soviet Union, or the ex-Soviet Union of Russia, as it is today, who, who, uh, who don't know, who haven't had access to the information, but people in the West have no such excuse and what shocks me is to see young people walking around with their little hammer and sickle badges and their little hammer it's and sickle... It's annoying, uh, I agree. And their Che Guevara T-shirts. And, their, uh, and when you tackle them, they say, oh, if only Lenin had lived and old Trotsky was really a nice man. They don't even know, you know, about Kronstadt or any of that stuff. And... Um, uh, I just think, you know, what's going on? You know, what is it with people in the West? They didn't damn well experience it, and, uh, and they just refuse. And as you said, you know, what is the death toll of communism in the 20th century? I mean, uh, you know, the Gulag, and then all the others, the Cambodians, the Vietnamese, the... Uh, I mean, it must be, I don't know, 50 million Mao Zedong, how many did he kill? You know? The answer to that one is it depends how you count. Exactly. I mean, the F- I heard the FSB admit to 19 million, isn't it? I'm not sure. They admit to that. 
But do you have a specific question? Well, my specific question is, I'm sorry, the specific question is, what, what, what do we have to do to get young people yeah. in the West to realise the enormity of uh, the disaster that communism was in the 20th century? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you want to take that certainly came from the heart. I'll, I'll take another one at the back, over there at the end. Yes, please. Yes, uh, thank you. My qu question really follows on from um, <clears throat> the previous gentleman's comments. I've, I've worked in several ex-Soviet states for several years. And, um, Professor, your co it's based on your comment about your experiences in the USA when you said in the 1980s the response or, or the, the position of various academics and doubtless others on the issue of the gulag was really determined by their attitude to domestic American politics. Mm. Uh, politics. Um, what has your impression been, th this is where it comes in with the previous gentleman's mm. point, what's your impression in the UK about that? Do you still, ha did you come across people in academia who uh, protested against your view or um, protested by silence against it. Thank you. Of course, nobody at the LSE would, you know, is, is bad at all, so <laughs> stipulate. They're all fine. Um, to, to, to the question about, you know, young people, I mean, to be fair, you could say, and why don't young people know any British history, and why don't they um, remember anything about, um, why don't they know any American history? I mean, you know, these young people today, they don't know enough history. I mean, it's, gener it's, a, it's a general rule. Um, I actually think, you know, the, the, the problem I described has changed, and this is partly an answer to your question, too. There has been one big change, actually, even since I wrote my book and since I started doing research for this book in the 90s, <coughs> and that is that the availability of Soviet archives really has changed the way that academics write about Soviet history and people talk about Soviet history. Now, there was a kind of sea change. You know, it used to be that the two groups, right, either you wrote about the gulag using prisoners' memoirs, because that's what there is, or you wrote using officially available information, which meant Soviet newspapers and a few little documents they published. And there wasn't anything else. And so you could choose this point of view or that point of view. And they didn't, they didn't mesh at all. I mean, you would remember this era. Um, it's the, the archives have made a really enormous difference because now, you know, a lot of things that we used to argue about have just kind of disappeared. I mean, what, you know, was there a gulag and how many people died? Well, yes, there was, and we can count them, or we can start to count them. It's not so easy to count them. But um, the, the archives have, sh have made it a much more realistic conversation um, you know, even in, in academic publishing and in, in, in sort of the world of professional historians, um, I don't really meet people who say Stalin was good or the Soviet Union should be excused. I mean, they may be out there, but um, even the ones who used to say that don't do it anymore. It's, there's, a, um, there's been a really major change because of archives. And I think that's trickled it down a little bit into um, even into the way Soviet history is taught to undergraduates and the way it's taught at school. I mean, I, it's, it's different. It's clearly taught differently now than when I was taught it. When I was taught this very cliched, again, it was either a right-wing cliche or a left-wing cliche, but it was, it wasn't, they weren't very deep. And we now have a much deeper sense of, of what happened. And I think that's... I think that's an important change. Um, we just got to get, I mean, 
effectively the solution to the problem you present is get lots of young people to buy my book. <laughs> and it will all be fine. Um, UK, and just to finish about the U- sure. UK academics are not, I don't think, very different from, from their American. I mean, there's a, there's sort of, I mean, did, all you had to do was read the um, obituaries of Eric Hobsbawm a couple of months ago. I mean, the, the Guardian, there was a loving obituary about, um, about him and what a great man he was, and then there were a couple real denunciations um, in the Telegraph at the time. I mean, there's still, there's still a division in academia about people with views like his. Um, but again, I think it's in the field of Soviet studies, it's much smaller and less than it used to be here as well because people simply have the real archives and arguments are now have kind of moved on. Now, you know, the law on that point about, about archives in Russia, I mean, because quite a number of our students, certainly those at the postgraduate level, uh, who have an interest in these kinds of affairs now actually do their research in, in Russia. Well, you, you have to. And, and it is becoming, I mean, you know, there, there's a general sense that there's very little that can be done in Russian archives, particularly during the Putin era, which is my, in my view generally is not true. I mean, there are limitations that were not there in the 1990s, but there is still an immense amount of archival material that can be used on these kinds of issues or Soviet international history or a whole, I'm one whole of the, set of issues. One of the effects of opening the archives is a lot of things sort of got out one way mm. or the other. I mean, the, the Polish defense ministry in about 1991 um, quietly took a few Xerox machines to Moscow, to the military archives, and Xeroxed something like a million documents of, um, you know, they're, they're, these are documents to do with the Soviet, you know, the, 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 the fronts that came through Poland at the end of the war, uh, the occupation, um, military documents about how the, how the Polish home army, how the resistance were treated by the Red Army. So, as I said, and it's now kind of now it's all sitting in Warsaw, where you can happily read it, and they can close the archives all they want, and it's it's, it's still open. And um, that's true about the, the the Gulag archive. There's a thing called the Gulag archive, which is the institution's own archive of the system, and that has been microfilmed, and you can read it in the in the extreme comfort of the Hoover Institution in Stanford, California. Um, so so a lot of it's out, and so the yes, they can close off certain things or make it harder to get things, but I don't think we're never going to go back to yeah. the stage where it's all banned and we can't yeah. read anything. It's very difficult, I mean, in terms of the, the policies that go into it. I, I did a lot of work in Russian archives in the 1990s, and, you know, exactly the kind of, of, of behavior that you described with, with, on the Polish side, what was I used to object to very strenuously because of the effects that it had on, on the Russian side. Now, of course, with lots of this being closed, I'm very happy that I'm able to read it in Warsaw or at the Hoover Institution or in, in, in Jerusalem or elsewhere in terms of areas where it was possible to pick up materials from back then. So you live and learn. Professor Oskin. Microphones. Oh, yeah, microphones. Uh, there's one phenomenon about Gulag which is rather puzzling, and that is the work of communists there. Mm. And some of them went through the whole experience, uh, dreadful experience, and continued to maintain their faith in Stalin and in the communist and tried to join the party when they got home. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, rejoined. I, I used to know one of them, a man called Lyat Kopelev. Uh, oh. He actually didn't become disillusioned with the Communist Party until the Khrushchev period, and things were much easier. Now, how do you explain it? Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's really a deeper question. You know, and that's a question about the nature of ideology and why people believe things and don't believe them and what it would take to make them disbelieve them. I mean, remember that many of the 
Um, of, of course, there were many communists who were arrested. Um, there were many communists arrested in the, in the, particularly in the late 30s. Um, and there were a whole, um, some people have described groups of communists who stuck together in the camps and sort of reinforced one another's views. And they would keep telling each other, you know, we, everybody, all these people are criminals, but our arrests were a mistake. Um, and people, you know, people found ways of explaining it, of justifying it, and legitimating it. And remember that, um, you know, it was a, you know, the, the, the appeal of communism and the appeal even of Stalinist communism, it, it gets harder and harder for us to understand it now from our perspective. Um, but it was, um, you know, it was a complete theory of history. Um, it was a scientific theory of history. It explained why things were the way they were and how things were going to be. And it continued to appeal to people even when it was disproved in many ways, you know, from the beginning to the end. And so, you, you know, the, your question is really a deeper question about the, the, the nature of belief. I mean, even when confronted with reality, you know, it isn't happening the way Marx said it was going to happen. Um, people still went on doing things. And you get this, actually, when, you, when I, in my book about the, the, the post post-war Eastern Europe, and this, this comes up as an issue all the time. You know, we're supposed to be carrying out this reform and the workers are supposed to be coming to class consciousness and they're supposed to be supporting us, but they don't. Why? You know, what's wrong? How do we adjust things so that reality fits the theory? I mean, it's, a, it's one of the deepest and most interesting problems about the Soviet Union, and, how, for, and it's one of the things I think hardest for us to understand. Hmm. Take a couple of questions upstairs. Yes, please. The gentleman in the blue shirt over there. Do we have another question? So we can. Yep, over there. At, at the foreign. Okay. Okay, please. Right. Thank you. Um, I understand your point about the very thin legacy of Russian human, act, um, human rights activists in the sort of 70s and so on, and, and, sort of, and what's going on under the Putin regime at the moment. But I wonder if you're being overly pessimistic about the current political implications of this. If one looks, and I'm just looking at the sort of most recent Edelman survey of um, trust of governments, uh, it looked at about 25 countries, and the one which, where the people trusted its government least was actually Russia. Mm. And the one, in fact, where, where, which, where people trusted their government most was actually China, and UK and, and US were actually nearer to Russia than to China. <laughs> um, but... So my, my, my question then is really, is are you not underestimating the um, understanding within the um, uh, Soviet people or the Russian people of uh, what went on and the nature of the, their present government? Mm. Yeah, please. Mm. And I'm afraid to say that you do a lot of cherry picking <laughs> to fit your gulag thesis. You practically forgot about the American Native Indians who were forced to live in reservations no different from those in but, Colima. But sir, that was not what the lecture was on. I think we no, should no, move, no, no, could we, the, could, we please, could we please move on to the other speaker that's sitting there? It is still gulags. Please. Um, yeah, uh, just a question on whether you have a sense of how Russian history gets taught to Russian school children and whether that's, uh, well, school children and at undergraduate level, and whether that's changing over time from sort of Soviet era to um, sort of the 90s, um, the Yeltsin era, and now, and how important you think that is? 
Yeah. Um, am I underestimating the Russians? Um, maybe. Uh, it's, it's always hard to know what to make of those polls. You know, you, if you do polls and you ask people about Putin, he, he still gets a very favorable rating. Um, if you then ask them, how do you feel about the person who runs your city or your town, then it's often very negative. So clearly, clearly the Russians are not happy with the way they're immediately governed, um, with, you know, which must, you know, must mean something. Um, it, it, nevertheless, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the evidence of mass discontent that will be strong enough to unseat Putin. There was a moment earlier, late last year, when I thought maybe we would see something like that, but um, uh, I, I don't see it yet. And actually, what worries me more is not that people are, um, it's not, you know, I, I'm not surprised that people are discontented and that, you know, in particular, corruption is an issue that bothers people now more than almost anything else. But this, you know, these, these deeper respect for the rule of law, the court system, um, the, the, the penal system, these are, these are not and haven't been strong issues even in the public protests. I mean, we've seen protests about falsified elections and we see um, complaints about corruption. But, the, you know, you don't hear a lot of conversation about the deeper issues. I mean, I don't. And then maybe somebody here is going to disagree with me. Um, I will say a word about the American Native Indians, actually. Um, one, of the, one of the things I've learned while talking about this subject in different parts of the world is that um, although, I'm, yes, I'm speaking about Russia and I'm, you know, I, this, is, this is the research I did, um, I do think it's true that the, the phenomenon of there being a piece of history that people find difficult um, and they need to talk about it is actually very widespread. Um, uh, you know, you, if you almost any country you can think of. I mean, I, I, in, in its way, the American civil rights movement was a kind of coming to terms with the past. You know, we hadn't ever really dealt with what slavery had done to us and what it had done to the political system and, mm. and how much unfairness was still left in the country. And it was a sort of going through that was a, um, was a way of dealing with that piece of history. Um, uh, you know, you would find it. I mean, you know, I, I don't have. If any country in the world, once you begin to think about it, whether it's the Australians and the and the Aborigines or the French and Vichy or Argentina and the Colonel's regime, you 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 begin to get this phenomenon of people needing to find a way to talk about a period of time like that. So, um, although it's true, I wasn't talking about the American Indians. Um, it, it's 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 a piece of American history that could be could be better understood and better discussed. Um, how Russian history is taught to Russian school children, from what I know, and I, I, I did look at this once, but not recently, but from what I know, it's, it basically varies according to who the teacher is. I mean, there is, there is enormous variability. I mean, I'm, I hear about Memorial, which is a Russian organization that is a, both a human rights organization and an organization that teaches and studies history, has all kinds of wonderful programs in Russian schools, you know, inspiring children to go and ask their parents what happened to them during the war and grandparents and so on. Um, and they do, there are programs like that. You know, you, I've met rather amazing Russian school teachers. Um, there are also a lot of bad textbooks around that either underplay or distort the role of Stalin in Soviet history. And I, I think it's really luck of the draw. I mean, who gets, um, you know, there, there aren't a lot of, I mean, it's a little bit like that with archives in Russia. You know, the, yes, the archives are all closed except the ones that are open. And there, you know, and why this one is open and that one isn't—it's kind of hard to say. It really depends on who the director is and 
um, what kind of mood he is when you get there and what, how he interprets his instructions from Moscow. And as I understand it, it that it's hard to generalize about the school system too because you get some teachers who, who teach and then although, the, as, as I said, the, there, has, there was a major textbook reform a few years back which was very disturbing, including um, a kind of whitewashing of Stalin. So it, 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 I don't want to generalize about it. And there are others who may know more here anyway. Mm. I suspect some of you might even have gone to Russian schools. So. Mm. Sorry, you're in charge. Please. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, you, gave a very, you made a very interesting point that Solzhenitsyn makes as well, and that's that the gulag started under Lenin. And that's really what I wanted to, wanted to ask or you can elaborate on, is to what extent it was Stalinism or to what extent it really was Leninism. And if there was a, some kind of counterfactual and Trotsky had taken over rather than Stalin, would the gulag have still been in place? Uh, that's very funny. That was the essay question I had on my, um, when I took a course in Soviet history as an undergraduate. The essay question. Not the final, at LSE, I mean. Uh, not at LSE, no. no. The final question, no, no, it was a perfectly reasonable question. Was Stalinism a development of Leninism or was it a distortion of Leninism? You have one hour to answer this question. That was, <coughs> so I. I <laughs> so in 30 seconds. <coughs> Uh, you know, yes, Stalin was different from Lenin. Um, yes, many of the elements, but at the same time, the, m most of the elements of what we would consider Stalinism, many of them were put in place immediately after the revolution. The camps were created right at the beginning. Um, Red Terror was part of the system from the beginning. The secret police were created from the beginning. Um, a system of centralized mass propaganda was there at the beginning. The other thing that is, that is clear in the very beginning, and this, you know, from early 20s onward, is the very peculiar Russian obsession with what we now call civil society. So independent associations and groups and clubs and youth organizations and private institutions, not merely, not just economic institutions, but schools and um, were, were attacked and dismantled under Lenin and from the beginning. And this becomes a kind of keystone, a, um, a very, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of Sovietization that we tended to ignore or forget about later on because it wasn't as spectacular as, you know, nationalizing industry. Um, but it's something that Lenin does right away, and it's also something that the Red Army and the NKVD do when they get to Eastern Europe in 1945. And it's one of the first... Um, first things that they do, so they must have considered it very important. All th these kind of basic building blocks are there from the beginning, you know, although Stalin added his own elements and certainly the mass system of camps, the idea that the camps were for millions of people and not just for tens of thousands of people, that's, a, that's Stalinist rather than Leninist. Now this lecture series is going to continue in the Lent term. We will then move closer to issues that deal with contemporary Russia, contemporary Eastern Europe. We also have a number of other lectures on at LSE and in LSE ideas uh, that deal with topics uh, connected up to Russia. For instance, on Tuesday the 5th of February, over in the Hong Kong Theatre, we have, I still call him our very own, Professor Dominic Levin, though he's now moved on to Cambridge, um, for a little while. Uh, still, still very much our very own. Uh, talking about Russia and the First World War, time to think again, question mark. Uh, chaired by Professor Jenna Tartlip, so I would strongly um, recommend 
that one. And it was a great pleasure to listen to you tonight. Thank you very much for your lecture. We are going to continue. This is, this is just a temporary break before we move on to, 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 to other matters in Lenten. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.